All right. Good morning. Good morning. Just grab a seat when you get a chance. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I have not had the opportunity to meet all of you yet. Um, I'd, I'd like to after the service, but my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm one of the elders here. And I get to teach today. And I want to teach out of the book of Ruth. We're going to finish the book. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ruth 4. And I think we're going to start in verse 9. And uh, listen, if this is your first time here and you're a guest, it's good to have you here, but you did come in to a movie right before the credits started rolling, if that makes any sense. I'm going to do the best job I can with the tricky text. I do think, and we do believe as a church, that Christ and his beautiful work can be found in every part of the Bible and every passage. So even a lineage, even the ending of a story, I think is going to show us Jesus in a very clear and compelling way. Um, It has me just from studying and putting this together. So turn to Ruth 4. And... uh, You know, I've been switching a lot of my runs. I'm a runner, and I've been switching a lot of my runs to this side of town um, because I want to learn more about this side of town. You see things differently through the eyes of a runner than you do through the eyes of a driver, right? You're not looking for signs or taillights or anything like that. You're able to kind of take in more of the detail and bump into people and just see things that you've never seen or picked up before. And this last week, I've been running by Highland Memorial Cemetery, right down the street that way, maybe a quarter mile. Um, just running by, noticing the giant tombstones. They're, they're big, with the names cleanly and crisply chiseled into the granite. Just to make it clear, I'm running by it. I'm not running through the cemetery. That's what weirdos do. <laughs> I'm just running by it. I had some friends that did that. I'm like, bro, that's macabre. Stop doing that. But they would run through the cemetery. I'm just running right by it. But I'm looking at the names, and some of them are common names. Some of the names not so common. Um, I don't know who any of these people are. They had to have come from maybe some importance or maybe some money. Um, I don't know. Maybe they've been in the headlines before. Maybe not. I bet the only people that really see that tombstone anymore is maybe some relatives occasionally and apparently runners. Um, I know that one day I'll have a tombstone. It might even be in that same lot of land. Uh, It'll have Thomas on it, and I'm sure it will have uh, a date, maybe a couple words. And to be honest with you, I mean, I'm sure my family will be there when they stick me in the ground, and it'll be, you know, a moment. But besides that, I just bet not too many people are going to come and see it. I just bet that over time it just becomes a tombstone. I think I'm okay with that. I think I'm okay with the fact that over time, time forgets us. Over time, time starts to erase our story. Now hear me out. Right now those names are chiseled very cleanly, edges, polished. But some of you have been to the cemeteries downtown, the ones that are older than 220 years And you start looking, it's hard to even make out what some of the names and the dates are. Those used to look like the ones down the street. Time, over time, has begun to forget those people. Those tombstones don't look new anymore. Hey, on top of that, our stories start to wear off too, don't they? The story of our life. I mean, some of you, not all of you, but some of you, I could really tell your story well. The story of your life. I know some details, some big moments, some holes that you've had to go through. I think I could do a good job. Some of you I'm still getting to know, but what about in 50 years? 
how much of your story is really going to be remembered and how much of it is going to be forgotten? What about 150 years? Even less. What about 300 years? Who's really going to know your story? Over time, time starts to forget us. Again, I mean, this church will be pastored by somebody else, probably four or five pastors between now and then. Most likely won't be meeting in West High School, right? It might even have a different name. Again, I feel like I'm okay with this. One of my favorite quotes, um, and it meant a lot to me as we started to plant legacy as a young man, as a young pastor and church planter, it was by a, a guy whose name is Count Zinzendorf. He lived in Europe hundreds of years ago, and he has this quote that's been accredited or attributed to him, and it is this, and it sounds odd, so hear me out. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Boy, I love that quote. It gives me permission to just disappear out of the limelight, that this isn't about me, that if I make anyone's legacy famous, if I make anyone's story famous, it ought to be Jesus. And if at the end of my life, after breathing my last breath, if people know and love Jesus more, then I've done a good job. And I could just subside and dissipate and be a footnote of a footnote of a footnote, maybe. I'm okay with that. I like this. I like the fact that I'm, I'm probably not going to make any headlines. I'm probably not going to find my way in a lot of history books. I'm not going to find my way in any history books, I'll bet. Here's the truth for you. Most, if not all, of you won't either. You won't be in the history books. You might not make the headlines. In fact, over time, your stories will be forgotten. And your tombstones will look like those downtown. It's just inevitable. Does this sound sad? Did I just get real sad? I'm sorry. You'll get over it. It does sound morose, and it does sound odd and depressing. You want to know why? Because there's something inside of you, and there's something deep, deep inside of me that wants to be remembered and wants to contribute something, that wants to be significant. We want to be not just ordinary people, but people that are extraordinary I want it too. I want it just like you. And we might not say it like that on a daily basis, but that is something that is just deep inside all of us. We desire to be extraordinary. We desire to see and hear things that are out of the ordinary. We even desire to be around people that are not quite ordinary. Have you noticed how our culture fixates on the celebrity culture, the extraordinary, the other half? We love it. I mean, we love to see what they eat, we love to see what they name their babies. We love to see all the details. There's magazines detailing the, their lives and the inner workings, who they're dating, what club they go to. And it doesn't matter if they throw a, a hanging curveball. It doesn't matter if they sing, they dance, they act. We love the celebrity culture. In fact, in my lifetime, which this is new, and I'm not an old guy, in my lifetime, for the first time, people are famous. Now hear this. They're famous for being famous. They can't hit a curveball. They can't sing. They can't act. They can't do anything but spend money and find themselves in the tabloids. And they're famous because they are famous. And we're attracted to that because it's extraordinary. We're attracted to that because it's interesting to us to see how people that are not ordinary and not routine live their life. But have you noticed, and maybe you have, what is most interesting to our culture is whenever we catch those celebrities and athletes when they're away from the field and away from the red carpet. Whenever they're doing just their normal routines, that's incredibly intriguing to us. When they don't have any makeup on, and they've got sweats on, and they pile out of their dirty Maserati to get a Starbucks, 
And they just look like you and me, minus the Maserati. They look like you and me. I mean, it seems normal that we would not have makeup on and have sweats on and pile out of a dirty car to get a coffee. That would be very normal, and we love that. That's why you see it online and on magazines. This is what their beach body looks like. Who's got the worst beach bodies before Photoshop finds it, you know? We love to see celebrities whenever they're living a normal and ordinary life. But there's a tension, isn't there? Because we can't relate to them too much because, after all, they are the other half, right? They are millionaires. They have fame and they have fortune. We're attracted to their extraordinary nature of living but we're distant because they are so far above and beyond us. That same phenomenon is occurring in us whenever we struggle with the Bible. Biblical stories. Stories like Ruth. As we finish Ruth today, it's very typical for us to not connect with books like that because we see these characters as very extraordinary while we ourselves are very routine and boringly predictable. These people are superstars, and I'm just me. These people have incredible devotionals, right? They wake up in the morning bright-eyed, can't wait to hear from the Lord, and we get out, and it takes us 16 minutes to dig the crud out of our eyes and fumble our way through a half a cup of coffee, and then barely, we're still barely a Christian by then. I mean, they have this, it's almost like we imagine them walking into the room and the Holy Spirit is there waiting for, Bo- hey, Boaz, it's nice to see you. I've been waiting here. I'm so anxious to teach you and show you all these neat things and minister to your heart. Like, that's really how they lived. And we're trying to figure out if we left our Bible at church last week. We, said, we, we see them as these extraordinary personalities, and we are very, very, very routine, very normal. We read these stories like Ruth or Nehemiah, Almost like they made some cut that we could never make. Like their 40 time is faster, or their vertical jump is better, and they're more mature, and their character is huge and exponential. And so God just looks at them and says, you know what, thank you for being such a cleaned up person. We're going to give you four chapters. <laughs> Ruth and Boaz, you get four. Welcome to the club. But we don't make the cut. So we look at the story, and you may have thought this. I definitely have thought this. What do I have in common with Boaz? What do these people realistically have in common with us? Come on. I mean, they, they don't live in our common times. They don't have braces to deal with, 401Ks, college debt. They don't have the things that we have to deal with. Transmissions going bad, mowers that won't start. And at the same time, even if they had those problems, they're probably so mature that they could figure it out really fast. They're such good Christians that they wouldn't even struggle with the problems that I would struggle with like I struggle with them, Right? So they can't relate with our world, and we don't measure up to their extraordinary status. And if that's true for you, this is what happens to the Bible if that's true for you. If they can't relate to your times, and you can't measure up to their status, then the stories just become something that can teach you, and they can be something that entertain you, but they can never be anything that really applies to you. Because you cannot relate. They become fables, or myths, or fairy tales. The truth is, and what I want you to really hear today, is this is a very routine and normal story about ordinary people doing very ordinary things in an ordinary way, right? We're talking about country folk here. We're talking about a country bumpkin farmer and a young girl from Moab. We're talking about us. We're talking about normal people going through the routine lives. 
It's you in this story. They're not more extraordinary than you are. You might as well be in this story. It's written to us. I mean, think about it. They have the same things that they're dealing with in this story that you deal with on an everyday basis. Fear, unbelief, depression, mourning death, moving, making new friends, trying to figure out new rhythms, finding a husband, finding a wife, again not believing God, rebelling against God, depression, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, all the things we struggle with today, they're struggling with in this story. It is for us. Over the weeks, because I don't have time to recap the entire story of Ruth, it's a beautiful story and you can read it in less than 30 minutes and I encourage you to do it if you don't know the story, but what God has been showing us is a story about a guy and a story about a girl. Boaz and Ruth. And Ruth is a woman that brings very little, if anything, to the table, right? She's broken. She's mourning a a death of a husband. If you read the first chapter, they've been married for about 10 years. It wasn't like this guy just croaked right after their honeymoon. Hey, no harm, no foul. It's not like they really connected that well. 10 years, right? She comes, she's impoverished financially. She's impoverished emotionally, She's in a new land. She came from a hostile nation. Not just another nation, a nation hostile to the Jews. She comes, no promise of any future, no hope, no love, no joy, just pain. Pain, hurt, that's what she brings. That's her dowry. And then you've got Boaz. Boaz who sees her, heard the reputation of her, and fell in love with her because he loves God first. And so he vows to do something very beautiful for Ruth. He vows to bring her into protection, to bring her into provision, to peace, to joy, to life. He vows to do this. And he does this, why? Because he loves God first. And then he loves his wife second. He loves God first. He loves Ruth second. See, if you swap that small detail, then you end up with a goofy love story, right? A guy likes a girl because she's hot. Or a guy likes a girl because she's got a great personality. It's not that. He loves God. He loves God. And because he loves God, it reframes how he sees Ruth, and he loves Ruth. That's that's important for me as a husband to see, by the way. If I want to love my wife more, it's not going to require her to change. It's not going to require her to look different, her to sound different, her to be different. If I just love God more, if I love God deeper, it reframes how I see my bride. That's what we have here. Last week, we actually saw Boaz coming as a very beautiful redeemer picture for us. A picture of a redeemer who is able to rescue and redeem Ruth in the place that she is. And it's an interesting passage last week because we saw Boaz as he contrasts with the bad redeemer. The redeemer who always walks out, who always abandons, who doesn't do what he's obligated to, who doesn't do anything except look after himself. Kind of the redeemers we like to collect around our own lives. And that's when our good Redeemer comes in to save us away from those things. And that's what we saw. We saw this beautiful picture of a masculine man redeeming a poverty-stricken foreign widow. And he does this, and it is a picture of the gospel long before the gospel even happens. Jesus is not even mentioned in this story, and this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus isn't even mentioned in this story, and this is an example of Jesus who is a masculine Redeemer who redeems us, listen, and catch this, as a people who come from a hostile nation. That's us, a very fortunate Ruth. 
He redeems us as an impoverished people. Not impoverished because we don't have money. Folks, you're impoverished because the currency that God looks at works and performance, you're impoverished, you're poor, you don't have any. God has provided that for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're impoverished of any merit, we're impoverished of any good performance, of any obedience. We're from a foreign, hostile nation. We're dead ourselves, and he redeems us from all of that. What we see is Jesus is a much more significant Boaz, and we as a church are a very fortunate Ruth. That's where the story has been up until now, okay? So we're going to jump in at verse 9, and we're going to start reading through this. I think it will be helpful for us. I think today will be helpful for a lot of you. Some of you might make upset a little bit, but I think for the most of you it will help you. Let's start. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, and we read this last week. I'm just going to read it again to kind of set the pace a little bit. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You were witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate, and it says all the people, notice last time there was just ten witnesses. Now there's a little bit of a crowd, because a crowd makes a crowd, and this is a big to-do now. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay. This is nothing more complex. We're going to pause it right there. This is nothing more complex than a very elaborate wedding toast. This is what you would hear. Hey, may you have beautiful babies. May you have a great future. May your kids do great things. May your house always have happiness and joy. There's a present by the door. Thanks for inviting us. That's what we're kind of seeing right now. But they name some names in there. And these names are important. And I cannot teach you everything there is to know about these names. I can't even take you back and tell the story of the names really well because it'd take hours. Most of you would fall asleep. None of you would come back. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just mention where the names are important for us today in this passage. Okay, that's the best I can do. Rachel and Leah are the first two that you see. These are household names to these people, right? It means more to them than it does to you just by me saying Rachel and Leah. Rachel's just buried down the street. She's buried in Bethlehem, right? Household name. Big tombstone with a name chiseled in the granite, right? Leah is the reason there is a town called Bethlehem. It was from the fruit of her womb that Judah came. It was from Judah's bloodline that Perez came. Perez is very significant in building the city. So these are big names. Interesting that Rachel and Leah, also foreign women from a foreign hostile tribe being knit into God's family, And it was from their womb that physically the nation of Israel was built. The 12 heads of the 12 tribes coming from them and their servants built Israel. Interesting. They're talking about fruitful wombs there. That's why Rachel and Leah's name is brought out. But if you know the story of Rachel and Leah, it's a messy story. It's got a lot of sin in it. It's got a lot of mess. It's got a lot of pride and jealousy and hate and deceit and sin, and rebellion, and unbelief, it is riddled with a weird story. 
But they're there. They're there. It's there. It's in the story. And they're bringing that out because of the fruitful womb. But then you see Perez's name, also influential, because it was through him that the, the town of Bethlehem eventually became to be, where they're at right now in this story. The thing about Perez, though, are his parents. It's a little bit of a Jerry Springer story. Listen, there's probably only two or three chapters in the Bible that can equate or eclipse how messed up the story of Judah and Tamar really is. It's in Genesis 38. You read it on your own time, right? I'm going to shotgun it for you really fast. Tamar, the mom, right, before she was Perez's mom, Tamar was a widow herself. A widow, just like Ruth. You know why she was a widow? Because God killed her husband. Because he was so evil. The Bible says he was so wicked and so evil, God just blasted him. Gone, right? But he had two brothers, and he had a dad. Judah's the dad. So Judah goes to brother number two and says, hey, brother number two, brother number one is dead, and they couldn't make babies. It is your job as a good kinsman redeemer to marry Tamar, make babies, to carry on the namesake of husband number one. He says, sure. They get married. He does such a poor job and is so wicked himself and so evil himself, God blasts him dead. So she's turning out to look a little bit like a black widow. Everyone she's marrying is dying. It's not because of her. It's because of their evil nature and God's judgment. But they're on brother number three right now. Judah is a dad. Says, all right, 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 right. Listen, if you just live with us for a little while, brother number three will grow up. We'll try this whole thing again. But that wasn't really going to happen, was it? Dad's probably not really all that interested in marrying off brother number three to this woman. And so I think Tamar picked it up eventually and thought, you know what, he's not going to come through on his end of the deal. And she did not believe God enough to provide. So out of a a series of deceit and lies, she dresses up like a prostitute on the side of the road and lures in her father-in-law, Judah himself, to be a dysfunctional kinsman redeemer. They make a baby. They make a couple babies. One of them is Perez. But here his name is. It's in the story. They're using it as a blessing. That would sound like a weird blessing today, wouldn't it? They're obviously not thinking of this. They're thinking of the fruitfulness of what Perez has done. So what they're saying is, may your family be productive. May your kids make kids that will make cities. That's all they're saying. But for you and me, I'm seeing something else altogether. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's very clear to me that God even uses our weird actions, our weird words, our immorality, our sins, our normal lives, our routine lives, our boring mistakes. He uses those things. He sweeps them into the narrative of his grand story. He sweeps them into the scope of what he is doing for his own glory, according to his own will, according to his own wisdom, according to his own direction. He's doing this. It's amazing. Look how crooked this family tree is. (laughs) But guess who comes out of it? The Son of God and the Savior of man. They come out of this crooked tree. Let's go on. Let's go on in the text. So Boaz and Ruth, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, 
who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Seven sons is the Hebrew ideal for a perfect family. If you had a family and had seven boys, you're considered a perfect family. So they're saying that this is even better than perfect. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. Boy, Naomi has come a long way, hasn't she? For those of you who have been following along in the story, she enters with death and bitterness, and she ends up with a grandson to carry on the name. She's been through a lot in four chapters. And became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, or Salmon, depending on whether you're Canadian or not, I guess. (laughs) Father Boaz... Hey, if you're Canadian, thanks for coming today. (laughs) I'm always taking a shot at people. I don't mean to. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Here the story of Ruth ends. Here the story resolves right here. It resolves in a lineage that ends in David. Very, very important because it points... It points to a substantial part of the genealogy of Jesus. It aims right at Jesus. You might as well draw a big arrow that points right to Jesus. It ends with the first God-glorifying king. That's where it ends. But what I can't understand in this, why would God, why would God bring Jesus through such a shallow part of the gene pool? <laughs> why would he pick junior varsity families? To produce a king. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he find a family that has got all their stuff together with no baggage, no big sin patterns in their life? Why wouldn't he find a family like that to produce a king, to produce royalty? Why would he find a family with so many crooked branches to their family tree? Why would he use a family like yours and like mine? Why would he use ours? Because again, we are them. And they are us. And you can relate a lot more than you realize you can. These people are not that much more extraordinary than you are. They're doing the same things you do. They say the the same things you say. They think the same things you catch yourself thinking. Now from the outside looking in, it looks like these folks had boring and predictable and routine lives from the outside. So it seems. I'd like to suggest a different answer. Maybe... What is boringly predictable and routine is not so routine after all. Maybe what seems so insignificant in this story is in fact very, very significant. In fact, what if there is no such thing as nominal routine? What if there's no such thing as an insignificant Christian? What if there is no such thing as a routine Christian life? What if those don't exist? What if God is acting right now in the midst of your failed complicated, troublesome, boring, predictable life? What if he's doing that in our lives? What if? What if that thing that you commonly treat as routine is in fact very holy? What if that's really going on? You know, this is all ending with a lineage that points to Jesus. It's the first time the story is even connected to Jesus. It's the first time we see anything like that. This is when the whole story makes sense. This is when it makes sense. It points to a redeemer. It focuses on an ultimate redeemer and what that redeemer does for his bride. 
It shows us how God is driving history. That's what we see here. So why is this important for you and me? It might be true, but why is it important? It might, it might be true, and I think it is, but why does it matter for you? It matters for you because it shows us that there's a divine purpose behind all the events in life. Listen, there is a divine purpose behind all the events of life, even your boring life, even your routine life, even your normal life. There is divine purpose behind all of it. It doesn't feel like that, though, does it? If, it just doesn't. It feels like God is working all over the place, but not in our boring routine worlds, right? seems that God works on the stage with the professionals. And he does things with very important people, but cannot be found anywhere around us. But it is. God is working, and your corner of the world is seemingly insignificant as it is. I think what we do is we go looking for God in many wrong places. We go looking for God in all the wrong places and in all the wrong departments. We think, and we wouldn't say this out loud, but you've got to admit with me, in your mind, you're thinking that God is found with families like that guy who sells his lucrative company and gives away all his money to the poor. God's with that guy. And then he moves his family to Africa, right, to dig wells for the impoverished who don't have any water. God is with that guy. And then they fast every other day so they could save up enough money to give the villagers with one leg, right? God is with that family. And then they name all their kids biblical names, right? God is with those families, but he would never touch my routine. He would never touch my normal. God can't be found there. It's impossible. And this has always been mankind's error. We have always, mankind has always searched for God in all the wrong places. We've always looked in the thrones and in the palaces and in the temples of earth. And God was found in a manger. He was found in a wood shop. He was found at parties. He was found with lepers. That's where God was found. We've always thought as mankind that God would be found among high teachers and in high places. But he was found around criminals and he was found around a cross. We've always thought, mankind has always thought, that God would be found to be a bold, courageous, good-looking leader that would free them from Roman oppression. But he didn't look like that, did he? He didn't sound like that, did he? They were looking in the wrong place. God would not be so interested in freeing them from Roman oppression. He would be much more interested in freeing them from death and from sin and what that brings as far as oppression. Jesus himself says to the religious elite, you go flipping through the pages of Scripture looking for God and I'm standing right here. I am he. You look and you look and you look, and I'm right before you. This is what we do. It's what mankind does. Maybe you've done it. I know I have. Maybe you've done this. You've always looked for God in these holy places. Maybe you've looked for God in staff meetings. God's in church staff meetings. That's where all the action happens, right? (laughs) Maybe God is at conferences. The Gospel Coalition Conference, that's where you find God. John Piper's living room, that's where God is. God is always in places like that. But he'd never, ever, ever, ever be found in my beat-up car, my rental home, my boring cubicle, my banged-up marriage, my sick mind. He'd never be found moving and flowing through my normal routine. He'd never be found there. And that's the way it feels. Like our life is substandard, boring, routine, insignificant. Not noteworthy at all, in any way. Especially when you add in and factor in all the sins that we have a hard time letting go of, right? And all the fractured relationships that flank us at every level, both family and outside of family. And then the baggage. 
right? That over time just forms a crust over our lives. Why would God touch that? Why would God ever, ever touch that? You know, I agree with C.S. Lewis right here when he says there are no ordinary Christians. And I'd like to extrapolate it. I'd like to protract that out a little bit, and I'd like to say that there are no ordinary moments and no ordinary days, no insignificant actions, no insignificant words. Hear me clearly when I say there is nothing for the Christian that does not matter. There is nothing for the Christian that is insignificant. There is nothing for the Christian that is routine. Nothing. It's important that we get that. I mean, ask yourself, what are you treating as if it just doesn't matter? What are you treating as if it's just routine, just normal, just run-of-the-mill, doesn't really matter? Where are you coasting? Where are you asking yourself or saying to yourself, God can't possibly be in this. It's too boring. It's Tuesday. God doesn't show up until Sundays, right? God doesn't show up until missional community. I mean, this is just Tuesday at work. It's routine. It doesn't matter, right? Where do you do that? Be honest with yourself. And when you're done being honest with yourself, encourage yourself because you're not too far out of being normal. This had to be what Ruth thought. Remember, mourning a 10-year marriage in a land where she doesn't even know all the customs. It's not like she just moved home. She moved away from home to a people that she didn't know and had the stigma of being a widow from a hostile nation. Sunburned, working in the fields, dudes gawking at her, confused, sad, bitter, probably saying things like what we would say, God, where are you in this? This is boringly predictable. It's sad. My heart is broken, and thanks a lot, but I can't see you anywhere. I can't see you doing anything. Little did she know, right? Little did she know that God was coursing through that life and changing history right before her eyes, right in the middle of her normal, right in the middle of her routine, right? Naomi couldn't have been too far from that. Probably hold off in some cottage, wringing her hands, not just mourning the death of a marriage, but the death of an, a long marriage and two sons wondering what happened. She says, don't call me, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because that's what I am because I'm empty-handed. Thanks a lot, God. Thanks a whole lot. Little did she know that not too long after that, nine months, she'd be holding a little child on her lap. Right? Little did she know. Boaz. I like Boaz's example. Boaz seems like he probably didn't have that thing going on in his life, but I guarantee you did because he's single and he's a little bit older. So sure, he had a job, but he's single. Right? Sure, he had good stature in the community, but he's single. Year after year after year of being single. How boringly predictable that guy's life is. How routine is that? God, nowhere to be seen. God's not touching my life. Little did they know. Little did they know. Such a beautiful story. Listen, there is nothing for the Christian that does not matter. There is nothing for the Christian that is insignificant. Nothing. I mean, I want you to think about the relationships that you have. Not the ones that, not your bros, not the people that you text back immediately. What about the ones that you wait a few days before you text back because they're not really your bro? You know what I'm saying? Your secondary relationships. 
What about your tertiary relationships, the ones where you're, you don't only not know their last name, you don't really care about them enough to ask them what their full name is? What about those people? Who are you treating as if they don't matter? What are you treating as insignificant? Have you ever thought about that? What about your rhythms? What about your routines, going to work, going through work, going to school, going through school? Are you treating it as procedure? I mean, I know how it can be. Sometimes the only thing that is different between Tuesday and Wednesday is the coffee mug you're drinking out of and the color of shirt you have tucked in. Besides that, it's the same old story. Very routine, very boringly predictable. What are you treating as just procedure in your life? Are you seeing God anywhere? Are your normal rhythms really all that normal? Can you trust that God is even taking the most boring part of your life, the most routine, rudimentary aspects of your life, can you trust that God is doing something beautiful in that? Maybe not for your significance, but for His. Can you trust God with that? Can Can you trust Him enough to worship Him with even the routine moments of your life? This is a hard question. I've been asking myself this question because, listen, I have a routine job. Everyone has routine aspects to their life. I don't care what it looks like from the outside looking in. There's always a routine, right? Always a normal, always insignificance. And I have to ask myself this question. I don't think a lot of the characters in this story could see it when it was happening that God was doing something. We have the benefit of hindsight where we can see it. What's interesting to me In this story, as we tie it off here, nothing ends like it starts. You start with a widow, and you end up with a bride. You start with famine, and you end up with wealth and provision. You start with despair, you end with hope. You start with loneliness, and you end up with family. You start with death, you end up with life. Listen, this this story, make no mistake, it starts off with corpses, and it ends with a baby. Not just a baby, but a baby born in Bethlehem. I don't know if you caught that. A baby born in Bethlehem. This would nuance and be a signature for another baby that would be born in Bethlehem much later. right? Who himself would be a very good kinsman redeemer for you and me. Who himself would be a better version of Boaz who lived and breathed in that same city. To rescue and redeem a more fortunate Ruth that would be you and me. It's interesting how the story does that. Listen, I think we need to as a church. I have to as a man. I think we as a church need to repent for not trusting God in our routine. Just not trusting God in our barley fields, in our famines, in our cubicles, in our banged up, rental, empty areas of life. Not trusting God. I think we as a church need to repent also for being a people that handle the things that God gives us as if they just don't matter. It just doesn't matter. Insignificant. That person doesn't matter. This moment doesn't matter. These words don't matter. Having that attitude about life. You know, interesting how the end of this story with a baby being born in Bethlehem is the beginning of ours. Their end is the beginning of ours if you look at it that way, right? A lot of us need to repent for how we're handling just our our time, 
our routine natures. Some of us need to repent for something totally different, though, right? Some of you in here, you're struggling with the idea of Jesus, right? You're not sure if you're a Christian, maybe. Maybe you, uh, I don't know, did something in church camp. Maybe it's all lost on you. Maybe you're still trying to figure it out. Let me tell you, today would either be the end of happiness, joy, provision for you, or it's the beginning. Just like this story. It's either the end for you or it's the beginning for you. What do you mean, Luke? I mean, it's the end in the fact that you will never get the provision that you've always wanted. You will never, away from Christ, get the rest that you seek. You will never get the the family that you look for apart from Christ. It, It could either be the end for you, and you've reached your ceiling, or it could be the beginning, where you are grafted into true family, where provision means something totally different from money. It's either your end or it's your beginning. What I've noticed is, is the only truly significant person to have ever lived, the only truly noteworthy person to have ever breathed earth on our planet is Jesus Christ. And guess what? He has no tombstone. He has no grave. And his story remains to be told. It still is being told all over the earth. Earlier in the story, Ruth, in order to be redeemed by Boaz, threw herself at his feet and asked to be covered. That was the job of a kinsman redeemer, right? Listen, if you're far from Christ, this is all I can tell you to do. To throw yourself at the feet of a better redeemer who will rescue you from yourself and from your bad redeemers. Not just rescue you from your sin, but to rescue you from your self-righteousness of trying to clean your own life to appear beautiful before God. Not denying the fact that you're doing such but denying the fact that Jesus did something very beautiful for you. It's the gospel. You see, God doesn't just ask you to turn away from your sins. He asks you to turn away from your self-righteousness, which is a glaring sin that we don't often always see. So that's what I'm asking you to do. If you're estranged from God, if you are still in a hostile nation away from God, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, I'm imploring you to throw yourself at the feet of a better Redeemer. Let today be a different day for you. Let it be a beginning for you. Go ahead and stand up with me. The rest of you, I just want you to, as, as, they, as the worship team comes up, and as we go through worship, and as we start to kind of push towards the end of this moment that we have together today, don't lose this moment. Don't lose this moment. Think about what it is that you treat as insignificant. Are they moments in your marriage Is it the drive to work? Is it your time on your cell phone? Is it your time with your kids? What is it that you're treating as if it just does not matter? And can you believe God that it does? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. Father, that you would redeem a widow, that you would redeem one who in fact was dead, that you would redeem an impoverished, foreign, hostile hopeless, dead bride. And that you'd bring us close to you. We have nothing to bring to the table, yet you call us to a table we have no business being at. We have nothing to bring to the equation, yet you're hungry to have us connected to you. Jesus, you're such a good Boaz figure. And Jesus, I'm such a fortunate Ruth. Thank you for this story. As we finish this story, it's been so good to us. Your word is so good to us. Your scriptures are so good to us. 
Thank you, God, for leaving evidence of yourself in every passage. And not just evidence of yourself, but evidence of your scandalous passion where you were on a cross, Father, receiving something aimed at us, taking a punishment deserved by us, receiving a wrath that was waiting to fall on our heads. Lord, thank you for your story, being in the Scriptures, of being put in a tomb, but to leave differently. To leave an empty, vacant grave. To bring us hope, to defeat death. Thank you for your story. Lord, let it permeate our hearts today. Both, both sinner and saint, let it permeate our hearts today. I need your gospel to permeate my heart today. Let it change my heart today. Well, we love you and we thank you. And as we take communion and as we pray together and as we worship and as we pray, Lord, we ask that you would convict and encourage us. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.